Let's go ahead and open up um, our copy of God's Word to Luke 2. Um, last week, we had talked about doing a series in Colossians, and honestly, felt led to mix it up a little bit. Um, reason being, it's Christmas time. <laughs> Simple <laughs> enough, it's Christmas Advent. time. <laughs> it's Advent, exactly. I'm like, oh yeah, Advent. <laughs> so we're actually going to hold off on Colossians till later. Uh, wonderful book, I would love to go through that at some point. But just praying about it with a few of you as well, just really felt led to change direction um, and actually focus more on, honestly, the Christmas season ahead of us. Uh, a lot of you know about Advent already. It technically starts on December 3rd uh, this year. It's a little late this year. Uh, just because That's Christmas what it is, does, yeah. This isn't the first Sunday next. Right. Yeah, yeah. I got a little ahead of myself. I I'm looked like, it up. It's this Sunday. Yeah, and then because yeah. I, I was wondering when does yeah. Advent start this year? Yeah, it's weird because there are four Sundays in December right before Christmas. Before Christmas this year, okay. Yeah, so... Yeah, uh, that's what I was, I was trying to figure It's out. different this year. Yeah, start. There you go, Close exactly. Enough. So we'll have like an actual Advent series proper starting next Sunday, but I actually wanted to tee us up tonight uh, with our sermon tonight on Luke 2, 21 through 35. Um, this is actually a, a message that I had shared with... Um, uh, just many of our friends from Mercy a couple of years ago, uh, our old church between Laura and myself, and um, uh, just had the opportunity to preach uh, this same sermon to them a couple of years ago. And I thought, you know, this is actually a very um, familiar passage where Christ himself as an eight-day-old is presented at the temple. Um, but we often don't think about the actual significance of this. And, and we oftentimes will approach Christmas as being, you know, okay, here's Christ come down to us. But we often forget about the fact that he actually came to fulfill all righteousness, even in his living and then his dying, right? Um, the active obedience of Christ, as a lot of us are aware of from our Majin group, you know. Um, but... Ooh, sorry. <laughs> You're okay. But... Uh, Basically, I want to go ahead and just lead us um, as we approach the word um, through this passage that, though familiar, um, it speaks about Christ's life, even as an infant, in ways that we might not often think of. So I want to provide kind of a unique perspective of the gospel here for us. Um, See, beyond the nativity scene, the images of shepherds and wise men that we often think of when we think of Advent— um, our passage that we're going to read of this evening in Luke 2 actually revolves around a major gospel truth that, again, we don't often think of. And it's this gospel truth that God is not only able to step into the mess of our lives, but he actually desires to step into the mess of our lives. I mean, maybe we know that, but we don't often live in that, right? We know that God is able to step into the mess of our lives, but do we actually rest in the fact that he desires to step into the mess of our lives? Uh, that will be the main point for us this evening. Um, and so let's go ahead and turn now to Luke 2. This will be from verses 21 through 35. So Luke 2, 21 through 35. All right, it says this, the word of God. At the end of eight days, when he, meaning Jesus, of course, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Very important. 
And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens up the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. His, this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This, dear friends, is the reading of God's holy word, forever faithful and true, and given to each one of us in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we come before your word, uh, we are truly blessed by the reading of it, but we also are blessed by the preaching of it. And so we ask, O oh God, that during this time that I simply, as an instrument of mercy in your hands, would uh, get out of the way, uh, that your Holy Spirit would be the one who preaches to our hearts directly from the word, um, that this would, like a sword that we just read about, uh, pierce us, that it would drive its truth into our hearts so that we might see Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who even as an eight-day-old, was fulfilling the law fully from cover to cover. So Jesus, we thank you for being our righteousness, our only righteousness. And we ask, O oh Lord, for eyes to see you for who you are in this time, so that Christ himself may be glorified, and we, your people, may enjoy you forever, fully, all the more because of this, your word. So we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, as a heads up, I'm actually going to stick to my notes a bit more tightly tonight. I haven't had much time to look over this, to be honest with you, but just so you're fully aware, um, um, this is really um, something that is, I think, very important for us to see, but I will be looking down a lot, unfortunately, tonight, more than usual, so just want to put that out for you guys. So, again, our main idea tonight that I mentioned earlier is that God is not only able to step into the mess of our lives, but he actually desires to step into the mess of our lives. And again, this is a very simple sounding truth, but very bold and very appropriate for us, especially as we come before this season of Advent and recognize, wow, Christ truly did come down for us. And so we're going to see this in particular expressed in two distinct ways this truth as it's unpacked for us. 
in two ways, and this is right here in your bulletin, in that Jesus was appointed for us, and we're going to see this in verses 21 through 24, but also that Jesus was sacrificed for us, which we'll see later on in verses 25 through 35 in particular. So as we kind of jump now into the preaching of God's word, um, I think it's actually a bit interesting to note that the late Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, really, really good theologian from well over 100 years ago now, um, had this wonderful commentary on the Gospel of Luke in particular. Uh, I have it over there in my room, but it's like this big, huge commentary. I think it's like three inches wide or so. Um, Really, really good commentary. And this commentary, though it's so big, it is just packed with pastoral nuances that a lot of commentaries and whatnot just don't even touch upon. Uh, Again, J.C. Ryle, uh, very uh, pastoral, shepherd-like kind of pastor. Um, In regard to this passage in particular, though, in his commentary on the same one, verses 21 and following, he makes this astounding point about names. And he says this, essentially, just paraphrasing, that names are loaded with meaning. And see, Christ in his incarnation could have been given so many appropriate names, if you think about it. I mean, when we have been praying to Jesus, for instance, we've been using various names, appropriate names, right? Uh, Names referring to him as king or ruler or prophet or priest or judge, even. You know, him being so high above us. And yet here in verse 21, right off the bat of our passage, we see that Mary and Joseph called his name Jesus, Savior. That was the name that God had given through the angel to name him, Jesus, Savior, right? And they did this then, called him Jesus, in obedience to the Lord's direction, according to Luke 1, given through Gabriel the angel. But you might be thinking, well, why then the name Jesus, right? I mean, why Joshua, quite literally in English. Why Joshua, Jesus, Savior? Why that? Why that name above every other name? Well, this name, above all other rightful names, king, judge, ruler, etc., speaks most clearly to us of this attribute of God, this incommunicable attribute, so to speak, or rather it's communicable attribute, as the Odin say. This thing that can be communicated to us. And that is to say... He is merciful toward us. He loves to stoop down and show mercy to us, to save us to the uttermost. See, Jesus is full of grace. He's full of this willingness to help us in the midst of our own afflictions, and he's full of this desire to deliver us from our sins to the uttermost. And so tonight, I actually want us to focus on these two aspects of saving grace, which as I mentioned or right here in our text, namely that he was appointed for us, Jesus, and that he was also sacrificed for us, Jesus, Savior. So let's go ahead and first look at this idea of him being appointed for us. This is again right there in verses 21 through 24. This scripture again says this in verse 21. At the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The reason why I'm calling this an appointment then, you know, appointment is kind of a weird word, right? We think of like doctor's appointments or something, which we all love here, I'm sure. You know, not really. (laughs) 
But the reason why I'm calling this an appointment, that he was appointed for this, is that in the original Greek language, this phrase in verse 21, at the end of eight days, in quote, is marked by the same word that is often used for fulfillment in the Greek. At the end of eight days, this thing was fulfilled. That's the idea. Something was fulfilled. Eight days, completion, fulfilled. Something's going on. In other words, Jesus was appointed to this. And that same word for fulfillment is picked up again in verse 22. Again, in the Greek language. A little hard to see in our English, but that's what's going on here, just grammatically speaking. Furthermore, the concept of Christ actively fulfilling all that he had come to do is continuously alluded throughout the entire rest of the passage. Again, it's kind of hard to communicate in terms of our English language, but in the Greek, um, verses 21 and 22 have this idea of like urgency behind it. Um, it'd be fun, actually, David, later on to like review this with you because you'll probably pick up on like this word, you know, this had to happen immediately. If I remember correctly, it was the word angus, like immediately, this had to happen, this had to go on, right? Like it went from this to this to this. And so there's something like this going on in the Greek. It says this essentially, when the eight days that were purposed to circumcise him were fulfilled, and then verse 22, when the eight days of their cleansing were fulfilled. In other words, there is again that sense of urgency. Something had to happen. It was appointed for this purpose. And then another purpose, just back to back, right there at the very birth of Christ. So these things were time sensitive. In order for Christ to fulfill all righteousness, he had to go through these things, even as a one-day-old or a two-day-old, or specifically here, an eight-day-old, in terms of cleansing and circumcision, that purification, that ritual. So what was Jesus fulfilling exactly as a little eight-day-old baby? And what was the meaning behind these signs of circumcision and cleansing? Well, these are such important questions for us to answer in order to understand what is actually going on in our passage. And thankfully, Luke, the gospel writer, makes it very clear for us. So look with me, me, if you will, at verse 23, uh, wherein Luke explains it this way. It says this, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And then in verse 24, it says this, Mary and Joseph... I'm paraphrasing here, but Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple to do what? It says, to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so in effect, we see Mary and Joseph actually publicly in the temple with Jesus himself, admitting their own need for cleansing and right standing before God as they bring Jesus, the Savior, to the temple. Theirs, Joseph and Mary's, here is an act of faith toward God in the exercise of obeying the law of God, specifically the commands of Exodus 13, verse 1, and Leviticus 12, verse 8, which have to do with when you would circumcise an eight-day-old male child. But their obedience stood in stark contrast to many in Israel at the time. Uh, Many just like our own kind of church cultures around us now, like here in Lynchburg, many Israelites at that time had actually forsaken God and adulterated his covenantal obligations. They just didn't go through with the proper rituals and rites and whatnot, like even circumcision. They were beginning to already disobey God more and more and more. 
Furthermore, men of power and persuasion had risen up in their midst to try to overcorrect things. Uh, we know these men as the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They tried to overcorrect the law of God. Um, the Sadducees by taking away a lot of what was in the law, and the Pharisees by adding to the law of God. So they tried to correct the irreligion of the people by adding to and taking away from God's law. But the gracious favor of God remained upon faithful true believers like Mary and Joseph even in this unbelieving, largely unbelieving nation state of Israel. See like Abraham who had offered up his firstborn son Isaac to God and like Hannah who had offered up Samuel to the priestly ordinance before God in the old covenant. Mary and Joseph here also offered up their firstborn son unto God. They were dedicating Christ to the service of God. But something's much more than just simply an observance of the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision was on display for us. Something more than just obedience to God's law was at stake here. See, in Mary and Joseph's ordinary obedience to the law, we actually see the magnificence of Christ begin to shine all the brighter. See, through what Christ had accomplished and what he was accomplishing, even here as an eight-day-old infant, would shine an everlasting, piercing light into the darkness of our own fallen human condition. See, in essence, Christ's presentation at the temple is just the beginning of what theologians, and even we have discussed before, have called this idea of the active obedience of Christ. That is to say that Christ actively obeyed the law of God fully on behalf of his people as the true and better Israel, the true and better son of God, the true and better Adam. In other words, Christ perfectly obeyed and fulfilled every last part of the law of God for us in spite of our own failure to keep it. So as to then attribute his perfect righteousness to us at just the right time, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is why Luke 1, verse 1, all the way back at the beginning of the gospel, begins by referring to the sum of Christ's life, death, and resurrection as being what he had, and here's our key word, accomplished for us. These are the things that Christ accomplished for us, including his life in our place. Now that said, there are a host of ways that we could misinterpret this passage. Uh, we could... Um, like a lot of churches do, try to moralize the story. Okay, well, look at Mary, look at Joseph, look at their faith. Isn't that amazing? Now let's go do that too. That's a horrible application of this passage. We could elevate them and, and look at their obedience to the law and say, look at them, aren't they amazing people? Now go be like Mary or go be like Joseph, right? Um, jokes aside, of course. <laughs> we could do that, but it'd be wrong. Uh, we could also look at this passage and neglect the very fact that Mary and Joseph actually um, needed to be cleansed themselves, that they were also imperfect, and that they actually recognized their own need of cleansing in their offering of Jesus at the temple. And we could also look at this passage and think that perhaps Jesus needed to go through these cleansing rituals for his own sake, just as any other firstborn male would. But if we were to do this, again, wrongly, we would be neglecting Christ's deity and his sinlessness in thinking that way. 
rather what Christ was doing, even as a young infant, was being consecrated at the temple, the center of God's covenantal dealing with his people for your sake and for mine alike. Now, this is astounding, then, isn't it? That Christ, even as a young infant, was actually fulfilling all righteousness, even as a little infant. In other words, the king of glory humbled himself for us. In light of his matchless power and his divine relationship to God the Father, as the eternal son, he chose to be numbered with every other Jewish male child undergoing the same rite and routine of purification. And so he willfully, lovingly stepped into the modernity, the boringness of our own lives, in order to fulfill all righteousness. He who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became poor. And in verse 24, we are reminded of this same aspect of Christ's condescension for us. Uh, Luke, in his gospel, notes that Mary and Joseph brought either a pair of turtle doves or of two young pigeons in accordance with Leviticus 12.8. Now, one animal uh, was purposed, as we know from the Old Testament, as a burnt sacrifice or a burnt offering, and the other as a sin offering or sin sacrifice. But if you were to flip over at some point to the instructions that were given in Leviticus 12, you'll also notice that the provision of these two birds is expressly offered to those who were the most poor in the people of Israel. It was those who were actually unable to afford the typical sacrifice, that being a year-old spotless lamb to be sacrificed. And there's something very poetic going on here. Mary and Joseph couldn't afford a spotless, pure lamb. They were too afford to bring a lamb. Instead, they brought Jesus, the Lamb of God. See, friends, in this way, God's message is made very clear to us. In our own impoverished ability to meet the law of God, God graciously provides the way in himself. He provides us with the lamb. He knows we're poor. He knows we're needy. Just like Mary and Joseph, who had to bring the turtle dove and the pigeons, we can't afford any real proper sacrifice to God. But he's given to us his lamb, Jesus, whom he appointed for us. See, figuratively speaking, this sacrificial lamb is right here in our passage. It is Jesus. Christ is the lamb. He is the lamb who was appointed to meet the demands of the law, to atone for us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's like as Galatians 4 says, that as Christ was born of a woman, born under the law, he was born under those things to redeem those of us who were under the law. So friends, do you see the heart of Jesus Christ for you, even in this display of the sacrifice? this presentation of Jesus at the temple, even as a young infant. See, this Jesus who is the wonderful counselor, the almighty God, is also your prince of peace. The one who makes peace by his own blood. He is the one who made peace for us, between us sinners and a holy, righteous God. And his sacrificial death for our sake is prefigured even here as a young infant who's brought to the temple for the first time like a silent lamb that he was in Luke chapter 2. Well, this brings us then to our second point of our message, uh, that Jesus was, of course, the right time truly sacrificed for us. 
his body given up for us. In verse 25 and following, we see a stark turning point in the narrative now in Luke chapter 2. Again, just to freak out for a moment with you guys, um, the sentence in our English um, doesn't necessarily begin with the word now, like we have right here in the ESV in verse 25. It's actually a much stronger word than just now there was a man. It's literally the word, and David, you'll probably catch this, but it's the word it do in Greek. Hmm. Behold. Behold. Which might sound like KJV, right? King James Version a little bit. Hmm. But it's very powerful because what's going on is Luke, the gospel writer, is intentionally using this word behold to startle our attention. Like, okay, here's this story. Now behold this, you know? Here's this, now behold this. It's not just this, 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 oh yeah, now this, 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 oh yeah, now this. He's like trying to really get our attention. There's a really big change, an important thing happening, happening right here in our narrative. And so right here, he uses that word behold. Uh, and Luke does this, by the way, a lot in the Gospel of Luke. Um, in fact, he uses it, for instance, um, when he first described Gabriel appearing to Mary, I'm sorry, to Elizabeth rather, rather, in Luke chapter one, and then again to Mary later on, he says, behold, Gabriel, behold the angel, you know, that kind of thing. Like, behold, behold, there's something, something new happening here that he is just commanding our attention with. Like, check it out, do not miss this new part of the gospel narrative. He even used the same word behold, adieu, again in the Greek, when he uh, when the angels appeared, rather, to the shepherds in the countryside. And now here in Luke 2, verse 25, he's using that same word, behold, again, to get our attention. Because something powerful regarding the gospel of Jesus is about to happen. See, he's signifying a shifting of focus. Away from the consecration made, this idea of a sacrifice, I'm sorry, consecration, rather, cleansing, cleaning, to a sacrifice. So he's shifting our eyes so that we see this new theme of redemptive history even right here. Not just cleansing, but now sacrifice about to be right before us. And he does this as he introduces Simeon now into the mix. So if you look with me at the text, how is Simeon first of all described? In verses 25 and following. Well, it says that he's essentially a man who was righteous and devout. He was a man who was waiting for the consolation or the peace of Israel. Just like Abraham and every other Old Testament believer before him, Simeon had been justified by faith in God through the coming Messiah, and he was considered righteous by God, vindicated before God as a result. Furthermore, Luke seems to use the word devout right there in our ESV, to refer to his attendance to God and to his ways. In other words, he was faithful, semperfy, always faithful, no matter what, all the days of his life. Now, this word devout is not that common in the New Testament, though, except for a few instances in Luke and Acts, so both the books that Luke wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But this word devout is often used in juxtaposition to what is ungodly, to what is profane, and so essentially, Luke is, is saying, look, there is 
a whole bunch of unbelievers, a whole bunch of people even attending the temple, just doing their ritualistic duty. But here comes a man who's actually devout. Like they're all just doing religion, just like we were praying for people here in Lynchburg, just doing religion, going to church every Sunday, doing the right thing, checking off the box. But here comes a man who truly believed, Simeon, a devout man. In the same way, I personally believe that this, even this phrase that this guy was devout, it serves to remind us that even when sin is at its darkness, darkest rather, the Lord always safeguards a remnant of those who will follow him. Even when we begin to feel like we're outnumbered. I mean, how many real believers are there around us? You know, those, those kind of questions as they come up. Am I alone? Am I the only one who actually believes this? Even when sin's at its darkest, the Lord, again, will always safeguard his remnant. There will always be a believing people upon this earth. Like Lot in the midst of Sodom, or Daniel in the heart of Babylon, or Jeremiah in the courts of the evil king Zedekiah, the Lord will always maintain witness of his own power and his glory until the last. Do you believe that he is doing the same even now? here in downtown Lynchburg. He's preserving a remnant. I see it right here. He's doing it. Friends, I can imagine that I then am not alone in grieving the current state of our own nation, let alone our city. Um, we talked about this already in our prayers and all, but our generation has become increasingly antagonistic and even hostile against the very bride of Christ. You see unjust mandates and rulings of all different kinds attacking the church and just undermining God's work in the church in our nation but even in um, situations in smaller governments like ours and so it can be so easy for us to lose hope it can be really difficult even for us to maintain uh, maintain a sense of hopefulness and optimism regarding the Lord's protection in these kinds of times. We mustn't think much further back than COVID to see a lot of these kind of things in effect, wondering what will happen in this new world order or whatever is coming about. But know this, that come whatever may in the future, come whatever may, the word of the Lord will continue to go forth and it will make inroads into the life of his church even in small gatherings of the church like this, and especially even within society, just as God has purposed. And so, even in the midst of our own uncertainties, we can rest in the fact that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we have every reason to yet still praise him, even when things look bleak. Now, arguably, this figurative darkening over the land that was happening even there in Jerusalem and Israel at the time was also the same kind of context which, in which Simeon was also worshiping God in spite of it all, in spite of the darkening of the land of Israel even then toward the things of God. He was, Simeon that is, among those in Israel whom Isaiah had prophesied way back in Isaiah 9 verse 2 saying this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Simeon was one of those men. 
And so through this Christ, whom Simeon was about to see in the flesh right before him, God would, as we know, indeed multiply his people out and increase their joy and divide them amongst, uh, divide amongst them rather the spoils of Christ's victory in the cross and in his resurrection. And so I invite you to look with me at verse 27, where we now see Simeon enter into the temple. And he enters into the temple now with the hope of God's peace in sight, and the Holy Spirit is so important upon him. Now it seems apparent that as soon as he saw Jesus, the Holy Spirit confirmed to him in his heart of hearts that this was the Messiah that he had been waiting for his whole life. And this Messiah was already beginning, as we read it and as we were listening to earlier, he had already begun to accomplish all of the law concerning him, even as an infant. And so Simeon gleefully picked up the Christ child into his, his arms. He blessed God, and he began to pour forth praise, a beautiful epitaph that we see in verses 29 through 32. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So friends, what did Simeon see in Jesus Christ? So many things. First, he arguably saw Isaiah 7 verse 14 play out before his own eyes. That the virgin who was with child, had born a son, God with us, Emmanuel. And that he had not just been born miraculously, but to fulfill all righteousness and all prophetic mysteries concerning the Messiah. Now I can't imagine how enthusiastic Simeon must have been to finally see then with certainty his own Savior in the flesh. And so with utter confidence, he then testified by the Spirit's power within him that his own eyes had finally seen the Lord's salvation by name, Jesus, Savior. A light that would reveal God himself to those outside of the house of Israel and bring purification and blamelessness to the people of Israel at last. But beyond the absolute hype going on here in the moment, there is one thing above all else that is perhaps most curious about this prophetic witness, and it's this that Simeon boldly proclaimed that God had, in quote, prepared, prepared this child to be the salvation for his people. That's a loaded statement. See, God was willfully, in other words, stepping into the mess of his people in love. Not just because he could, but because he wanted to. And this news, then, was nothing short of marvelous. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure, as Isaiah 25, verse 1 says, were now being revealed moment by moment by moment by moment. This was absolutely exciting. The God who had promised to swallow up death forever had sent his only son to come in the flesh and accomplish so great a salvation right before the eyes of the people of Israel. In the midst of all this marveling, Simeon, I love this part, just turned aside to Mary in particular. And he shared with her the sobering words that we read of in verses 34 and 35. And as well as excitement, he said this, Behold, again our word behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel 
and for a sign that is opposed. You might be thinking, what is that sign, right? Well, then he explains it. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. In other words, that sign is that he's going to be crucified. But a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. In other words, sin of the mind and the heart will be revealed and finally taken care of in the cross of Christ. Now, time would, of course, fail us to unpack the rising and falling of all of Israel tonight, so we won't go there, obviously. But I do believe that there's something simple and key to our understanding of all of this. And it's this, that just as the Lord God had created the heavens and the earth, as he had separated out light from darkness, ocean from sky, sun from the moon, drawing a man from the dust of the earth, so are we new creations in Christ by the Holy Spirit's work. We do not belong to this world, but we are called out of darkness into his marvelous light, out of spiritual death into Christ's newness of life, out from under the curse of our sins into the joy of eternal life secured and offered to us in and only in Christ. And the tool of this separation between those who would fall due to Christ and those who would rise due to Christ is nothing less than the sign of the cross. See, as Simeon prophesied, a sign that is opposed, a sign that is opposed, that's the cross. It's a shameful sign. It's a sign of death. It's like the Christmas carol that we often sing, and I'm sure we'll sing at some point even this Christmas, this Advent. Nail spear shall pierce him through, the cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. That's the sign which Simeon was prophesying about. The cross. Friends, for all of us who are in him, though, Christ is a sure sanctuary and a safe shelter for our souls, just as Isaiah 8, verse 14 tells us. But for those who are outside of Christ, who are not believers in him, his is a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. As 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, Christ crucified is indeed a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ in his sacrificial death for us would effectively then work salvation for all who have faith in him. His righteous obedience of the whole law, perfectly obeyed, would be attributed to us, each and every one of us, who turn from our own sin and by faith call upon his name. But those who do not are left standing on their own accord, their own failed merits before God. And so this cross divides those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. This cross is indeed a fall but also the most wise and beautiful thing for those of us who are in Christ. Accordingly so, many have and many will continue to rise and fall at the coming of this king at the last. And the thoughts from many hearts toward the only redeemer of God's elect will be revealed in due time, as Simeon prophesied. And so as we conclude, what are your thoughts and your heart attitude toward Christ? Not just as believers, but on a day-by-day basis. 
Do we think much of him? Do we own the cross for ourselves? Do we identify with the cross of Christ? Perhaps recent events in your life have tested your faith like never before. I know I've experienced a lot of that myself. Perhaps the trials of life, living in this post-COVID world where things have just been radically altered in many ways, have dismantled your social network, the people that you once trusted even four or five years ago, and maybe don't have to lean on anymore. Things have been shaken up. Perhaps you're approaching Christmas this year with concerns over your own family relationships, the reopening of wounds that haven't yet healed. Whatever the case, if you are in Christ, there is one who is with you until the very end. Because he who guards his people, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, or who will ever let your foot be moved, is with you. His name is Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, Savior. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for, again, this time where we can approach your word with contrite hearts and humble hearts and even quieted hearts before you. Thank you, O Lord, that your word, um, yes, convicts us, but it also comforts us. It draws our minds toward the sins that we have in our own souls, but it also allows us to see the stability and the surety that is found in Christ and in Christ alone, the lover of our souls, the savior of sinners such as us. And so we thank you for the love of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit, the very smiles of God over us, unwavering, unchanging, because we are in Jesus. And so we thank you. We thank you for being the God who loved us and who made us, and who gave his only son for us. And so we pray all this in his holy name.